Good morning. My name is Aaron Greeno, and this is my wife, Serenity, and two of our kids. The other two are at a girls' camp this weekend, some of you may know about. This is Sam, and this is Amanda, and today the scripture is Luke chapter 19, verses 36 through 40. And I can't see in these glasses, I'm sorry. There it is. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all of the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees who were in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these remain silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the living word of God for us today. Thank you, Greeno family. Thank you, band. Horns, you guys are men after my own heart. Good morning, fellowship. It was like a scattering of response. But hey, I wanted to say it's good to be back. Uh, Some of you don't know, but I've just returned from a trip. So I haven't been here. I think it's been about four weeks since I've been here in this campus, and it's really good to be back. The last two of those weeks, I was in Israel with my wife and about 35 others, um, a couple few of you in the room that were with us in both Franklin and Brentwood campus. We had an unbelievable trip. Just many, many blessings from the weather to how the group got along to the opportunity we had to go the places we were hoping that we could go. And it was just a blessing to be there. And I say that for two reasons. One is just to say it is really good to be back, even though coming from the Holy Land, but this is my people. You know, this is our family of faith here. It's really good to be here. Second of all, I just want to say I would love to encourage all of you to pray about someday going to the Holy Land. And we're going to start a rhythm, Lord willing, of every two years taking a group over there. So if that's something that you would love to do and you've always maybe thought about doing, start praying about it. Um, You can email me, come find me sometime and just say, I want to get on that list and I'll get you information as we get closer to it. But it was a marvelous trip. And what I get to teach this morning is coming straight from one of the places that we got to visit while we were there. So we're taking two weeks pause from our study through the book of Ruth to focus on Holy Week. This morning, obviously, as you know, is Palm Sunday. Next week's Easter Sunday. And so we're going to pause that other series, and we're going to focus on the life of Jesus, the events that were happening in his life on these important days, the final week before his death and resurrection. And I want to invite you into a journey with us. We want to follow the footsteps of Jesus through this week. The best way to do that is to sign up through um, a text to get a daily devotional. We'll put the information up here on the screen. I know many of you have already done this, but if you haven't, I can't encourage you enough to do it. What's interesting about this week, Holy Week, is 
we know, with one or two exceptions, we know where Jesus was and we can follow his path, follow his footsteps. And so our devotionals this week are gonna help us literally follow Jesus in a sense, to be with him, to consider where he was on each day leading up to uh, Friday and then ultimately to Sunday, Resurrection Day. So just send Daily Devo to that number right there. It's gonna start this evening or I think around six o'clock. I don't know exactly what time, but sometime this evening we'll get a text. That'll be the intro to the uh, devotionals. And then starting tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., we'll get texts every morning at 6 until next Sunday, Easter Sunday. Now, why do we do this? Well, our core identity is followers of Jesus. That's who we are. Uh, we're not just religious people. We, we are disciples of Jesus. And I was thinking about this, even coming back from, from Israel, it sometimes feels hard to follow Jesus in our time and place. And one of the reasons for that is we feel so distant chronologically and culturally from the time and place where Jesus was. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but sometimes it's hard to kind of connect to his life in that kind of way. So Passion Week allows us to zoom in. It, the gospels go in slow motion when they get to Passion Week, when they get to Holy Week. In fact, I, I read this week that one third of the gospels are devoted to these eight days, you know, from today through next Sunday. One third of the gospels. Jesus lived about 33 years of life and one third of the gospels are focused on these eight days. And so they zoom in and it gives us a chance to zoom in and be very focused on following him through these days. So the invitation for us is to pay attention this week. Follow Jesus and his steps this week. And I think you might be surprised how your heart will be revived. With that said, uh, let's jump into Palm Sunday. Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 19. We're gonna be in the passage that the Greedo family read for us, verses 36 to 40. But before I dive into that, I'd really like to set the stage for us geographically because it actually, uh, it matters that you kind of know where we are where Jesus is, you know, this, this is one of the maybe rare times in the Gospels where we know exactly where this event happened. When we were in Israel and we would arrive to a site, we would say, this is an A site or a B site or a C site. A sites would be sites that we know specifically from what the Bible says, this event happened right where you're standing or right where you're sitting. Like it literally happened right here. Sea sites are those that we say, well, we don't really know. It's somewhere in this area or it's somewhere in this region, but we can't point to the specific spot. And then B site is maybe in the middle. So for example, the Garden of Gethsemane, we know right where that valley was, where the olive trees were grown. And we've, we've, we've found archeological evidence that there was an olive press, which is what Gethsemane means. But we can't say this is the spot where Jesus knelt and shed drops of, of blood, et cetera. But what we have this morning is an A site. We know exactly where the triumphal entry went. There is still a road. It's now paved over, but it's an ancient road that you can follow down the Mount of Olives where these events would have happened. Now, let me start with a map just to orient you a little bit here. So we'll put this on the screen. Uh, you can see Jerusalem is this area here. Now it's elevated up on top of a hill, up on top of Mount Moriah. Uh, so the tip of Mount Moriah would be right here where the temple was, was built on. That was the mountain that Abraham offered Isaac in sacrifice. And then years later, 
David captured the city, and then Solomon built the original temple right there on that spot. There's a, a deep ravine into this valley right here, the, the Kidron Valley, and this is where the Garden of Gethsemane, somewhere in this, would have been in this area. But Jesus, at the time of Holy Week, was staying over here east of Jerusalem in a town called Bethany. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany, and we believe he was staying in their house this week. He had a very close relationship with them. Obviously, we all know the name Lazarus for sure. In fact, it was shortly after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead that the triumphal entry happened. It might've just been a week or two before that. There was a big party at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha the night before the triumphal entry. So that would have been Saturday night. And John's gospel tells us that it was at this party to honor Jesus that Mary took that vase of very expensive perfume. It would have been kind of a retirement amount of money that this perfume was worth. And she broke it and she poured it all over Jesus. And this is when Judas got mad. You remember Judas said, you you should have given that to the poor. Why are you wasting it? Jesus' response was, she's not wasting it. She's anointing me for my burial. And you can imagine, you know, eyebrows must have raised when he said that. That was Saturday night. Okay, Sunday morning, Jesus leaves from Bethany, heading east up to the Mount of Olives. Now he passes through Bethpage, which is where he got the donkey. Why is that so significant? Because of Zechariah 9.9, written hundreds of years before Jesus. Zechariah prophesied, Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey. So the Israelites knew to look for a king coming on a donkey. They knew that. They knew that prophecy. And here's a man whose fame was growing because of his miracles. He had just raised a dead man out of the grave, and he's riding toward Jerusalem on a donkey. So you can start to sense the excitement that the followers of Jesus must have felt. Now, let me show you a photo of the Mount of Olives because right right here, so just after Bethpage, he would have been at the, the peak of the Mount of Olives, and then he would have headed down toward Jerusalem, and then you go back up when you cross this valley. But let me show you what the Mount of Olives looks like today. This was a picture that Jody took on Wednesday. We were right here just this, what, four days ago on Wednesday. Now, um, there's been a lot that's changed. Obviously, you have this modern city of Jerusalem in the background. You have the Dome of the Rock, which right here was the place where the temple would have sat. But what you still have that would have been there in Jesus' day is this massive platform. This is the Temple Mount, this platform that Herod the Great built, right? In, you know, right before the time of Jesus is when that would have been built. We know from historian Josephus that the temple would have been two and a half times the height of the Dome of the Rock. So just imagine how amazing that must have looked to crest the hill at the Mount of Olives and look over across the Kidron Valley down here up into Jerusalem. It, it would have taken your breath away. Because so much has changed, I wanted to show you something that may look a little more like it would have looked in Jesus' day. So I found this painting uh, from an artist in 1901. 
you can see 1901 was a, a lot different from modern day. Uh, you can see there's not, there's not been a lot that's been built up. You can even see this road. This is the same road that we believe Jesus would have rode down on and probably would have looked very much like this. The road today is paved, but it's in the same place. And so Jesus would have come down this road where these people are walking, down into the valley. This is over near the Garden of Gethsemane, which he would come back to on um, uh, Friday night, or sorry, Thursday night. And then he would come up and around this pathway and then more than likely up to the Temple Mount over here from the, the, the southern steps up to the temple. So you can picture what this would have looked like. Jesus was on this donkey. He's riding downhill and all eyes are on him and Jesus's eyes are on Jerusalem. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but let's look at our text this morning and I'm just gonna break it down sort of verse by verse, in some cases, phrase by phrase. This is Luke 19, 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Let me just pause there for a minute. We don't do that today. We don't take off our coats, you know, and, and put them down for someone special. But we do have an expression that is similar. Roll out the red carpet. Now, why carpet or why cloaks is because someone important, you don't want the ha them to have to get dirty. You know, even the feet of the donkey that Jesus is riding on, you don't want that, that feet to get dirty. So you would spread the cloaks on the road. You'd rather your best garment get dirty than for the feet of the donkey that the king is riding on to get dirty dirty. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Let's pause again right there. Did you notice there's a multitude of disciples, not just 12? When the gospels say the 12, talking about the 12, but when they say the disciples of Jesus or the followers of Jesus, there were many men and women who were following Jesus from town to town, excited about his ministry, spreading the news all around about Jesus. So this whole multitude, we don't know exactly how many at this point, but this multitude of people begin to rejoice. Now, what are they doing? They're, something has stirred them to glorify God. You notice they're, they're not praising Jesus. They're praising God. That must have made Jesus happy because his whole purpose was to bring glory to the Father. Everything he did, everything he said, every breath he took was to live out his purpose to bring glory to the Father. So here the mighty works they had seen Jesus do were causing them to glorify God. And they were not only glorifying God, they were glorifying God with some very specific words. And I, I wanna show you these words here. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace or shalom in heaven and glory in the highest. That's a quote from Psalm 118. Now that's very significant because Psalm 18 is one of the Psalms of Ascent. There's about 20, uh, I think 22 Psalms uh, that are, are spoken by Hebrew people, were spoken by Hebrew people when they would ascend up to Jerusalem. Jer Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Jerusalem, that whole area is a very high elevation compared to the rest of the country. So you're always going up. You're always ascending when you travel to Jerusalem. Three times a year, all the men over 12, 
were called to Jerusalem to gather for three different festivals. Passover was one of them. This was Passover week, guys. So the roads would have been crowded with people singing the Psalms of Ascent. And so these followers of Jesus are on Psalm 118, and it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they'd sung this all their lives going up to Jerusalem, but this time they could point to the king and they could say, and he's here, and he's here. What you have to understand is what's happening right here is all of this is putting Jesus on a collision course with anybody who is in power in Jerusalem. Government power, religious power. Because all these followers of Jesus are either symbolically with their cloaks or literally with their words saying something. What they're saying is indisputably clear. The long-awaited Messiah, the king who is going to rescue us, is now arriving. Hundreds of years of waiting and crying and hoping are finally being fulfilled on this day. He's the one. The collision course is either Jesus is going to kick the Romans out and take the throne of David, or he's going to be killed. And what's fascinating is Jesus is not telling them to be quiet. If you've read the Gospels, you know that this was different. Before this day, when someone would cry out, ooh, there's a microphone. (laughs) When someone would cry out, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus would say, hold on that. Don't don't proclaim that yet. Don't tell anyone that yet because his time hadn't come. He was not silencing them. What does that mean? His time had come. This was the moment. Now, none of this is lost on the Pharisees. We're gonna hear from them next in our text. Verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, do you realize, Jesus, your disciples are saying that, that you're the chosen one, that, that you're the king, you're the Messiah about to overthrow Rome? This is dangerous. Rebuke them, make them be silent. And look at Jesus's answer. I love this. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I think that has to be one of the most provocative and bold statements Jesus ever made. I've always been fascinated that. I remember hearing this story growing up in church, even Palm Sunday especially. It's just like, wow, is that, was he being literal? Was he being figurative? What would it be like for stones to shout out or sing or whatever stones would do? And to understand why Jesus said this, I think you have to, you have to see how important this moment was, not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole creation. Ever since Genesis chapter three, at the very beginning, when sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were still the only humans. Ever since Genesis chapter three, the creation has been longing. Groaning is the word that Paul uses. Aching for the mess to be cleaned up, for the curse to be rolled back, for broken things to be made whole again. And then in the Old Testament prophecies, we start getting a picture of this 
messianic king, this, this powerful one who will come and not just rescue Israel, but heal creation. Bring about true peace, true shalom, true wholeness. Now think about this for a minute. Jesus had just raised a man from the dead. He was riding into town on a donkey, according to Zechariah's prophecy. All these people were laying down their cloaks, and, and we know from other gospels that they were waving these palm branches and saying, Hosanna, which means save us, rescue us. This is the moment. This is it. God himself is arriving to bring a wholeness to creation. And Jesus can see all this. His followers can see all this. The only people that can't see this are the religious experts. Isn't that ironic? And so what's interesting about Jesus' words here, he's essentially saying, listen, the whole creation is recognizing what's happening here. In other words, the rocks have eyes to see what you, experts of the law, cannot see. And so even if no human being could see it, in other words, if, if these were silent, if my disciples and followers were quiet about this, the stones themselves, the creation itself would proclaim it. They would burst out because this is the moment that the universe has been longing for. I was thinking about this verse when I was up on the Mount of Olives on Wednesday. And I wanted to pick up a stone. And so I did. I don't know if I was supposed to, but I did. This stone was on the Mount of Olives on Wednesday. And I was, I didn't know, like, you know, am I allowed to? And I, I thought, of course, there's so many stones. But I thought, well, if every tourist picked up a bunch of stones, there wouldn't be any stones left for anybody else. But I said, no, this is for a sermon illustration. Okay. <laughs> so we've, we've got a stone from the Mount of Olives. And I've been, I've been looking at this stone and holding this stone. And what's been coming to my mind is I kind of love the fact that when we worship Jesus, we are aligning ourselves with the stones. The reason I love that is because I don't know that there's anything in God's creation more different from us than stones, rocks. Think about it. We're animated. We're alive. Stones just still, silent. We're fragile. Stones durable. I mean, I, I don't, for all I know, this might have been here when Jesus rode down. I don't know. It might not have been, but it might have been. It's durable. We're temporary. Stones are enduring. We're restless. Stones stay put. We kind of demand attention sometimes. Stones fade into the background. Yet we're capable of all kinds of creative and productive work. Stones just sit. But we have this in common with the stones. We were both made to glorify the true king. And so there was this moment in time 2,000 years ago where Jesus said, the whole creation 
must fulfill its created purpose. And if the human beings who are designed to lead the worship will stay silent, the stones themselves will cry out because they're all made for that. We're all made to worship. You might even say there's a sense that this stone in front of me seems to understand its core purpose better than us sometimes. I find myself chasing all kinds of things other than what I was designed for. Some of them selfish, some of them just because I long for comfort or entertainment. And as I've been looking at this stone in the last few days, the stone has been crying out to me in a sense. It's been saying, don't forget what you were made for. Glorifying King, glorifying your King Jesus. Now, we know where the story goes from here. From Palm Sunday to Good Friday is a pretty big descent. Am I right? Jesus did not do what the crowds were hoping he would do. He didn't kick the Romans out. He didn't sit on the throne of David. That's, that's saved for his second coming. They didn't understand that. In fact, instead of Jesus ascending to a throne, what did Jesus do? He descended to the lowest point a human being can descend to. Mocked, stripped naked, spat upon, publicly humiliated, executed in front of hundreds of people. And so because Jesus descended instead of ascended, the crowds turned on him. His followers abandoned him. His closest friends couldn't stay awake with him when he asked. By the end of the week, the only voices proclaiming him king were the Roman soldiers in mockery. How fickle are the hearts of men I want to come back to Palm Sunday, though. I don't want to skip past too quickly what happened in this moment on Palm Sunday before all the other stuff. Because even though it was a brief moment only, in this moment on Palm Sunday, human beings did what human beings were designed to do. They led the creation in worship of the true king. In other words, the rocks did not have to cry out because the followers of Jesus proclaimed what was true and they worshiped God. And that moment gives us a preview of what is to come. Because the other special thing about the Mount of Olives, not only was it the place that Jesus came on his triumphal entry, the Mount of Olives is also the place where Jesus will return. Again, Zechariah tells us when Jesus returns, when he comes back, he's coming back to this very place. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. And there when he returns, he's gonna walk down, he's gonna go back up, and he is gonna sit on the throne. And he is gonna rule from that throne. And he is gonna heal not just every one, but everything. Creation itself will be restored. Sin 
death, which he came to conquer the first time, will be an ancient memory. It will be cast away. And all that will be left is life. And in that time and in that place, we will fulfill our purpose as humans. We will lead the choir of the stones and the mountains and the rivers and the trees. We will all sing in harmony together because everything will be made right. Everything will be living out its intention, its created purpose. What do we do in the meantime? Jesus has not come back yet. He might this week, you don't know, but he hasn't come back yet. So what do we do as we wait? What do we, what do, we do as we anticipate his second return? Here's the thing about our purpose, guys, our created purpose. We don't have to wait until everything around us is made right before we can lead creation around us in worshiping our king. So in fact, I want you to think about this even as you look at this rock right now, and you're gonna see a lot of other rocks, you know, because rocks are everywhere, even, even around Middle Tennessee. You're gonna see some other rocks this week, and I want you to notice the rocks this week. And every time you see a rock, let it serve as a reminder of who you are and what you were made to do. In that way, let the rocks cry out to you this week. Let them call you to worship. So this is our first picture of what it will look like for us to follow Jesus this week. We do exactly what the first disciples of Jesus did on Palm Sunday. We worship so the stones don't have to cry out. We keep on throughout the week thanking Jesus, honoring Jesus, worshiping the Father because of the mighty works of Jesus. Now, what does that look like? I want to get really specific on this just with this last couple minutes, and then, and then we'll close out. To, what does it look like for us to worship Jesus right now as we wait for his return, even this week as we're following him in his steps throughout this holy week? Well, I think it starts with our lips just like it did for them 2,000 years ago. They were blessing God. They were proclaiming things. They were worshiping God because of the mighty works. So let's keep proclaiming him with our lips this week. Let's talk about him. Let's let Jesus be our dinner table conversation. And, and in the morning and when we wake up, let's talk about Jesus. If, if no other time in the year, this is the week, let's talk about Jesus. Let's proclaim. Let's continue to worship. We've already been doing that this morning. We're gonna sing again in a few minutes. That is a good and necessary start to proclaim him with our lips, but worshiping Jesus also means bowing down to him with our hearts. At one point in Jesus' teaching, he quoted Isaiah to his disciples, and he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I had a thought this week that I never realized before. Bowing down to Jesus with their hearts is a thing that the disciples of Jesus could not do on Palm Sunday. Why could they not yet do that? Because their hearts had not yet been redeemed. 
Jesus had not yet died for their sins. So they could honor him with their lips, which they did, but they could not yet bow down with their hearts. Not really, not truly. You and I sit on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. What does that mean? We can both honor him with our lips and bow down to him with our hearts. We can draw near to Jesus because he's removed the veil. Now, I think the only way you and I will bow down to Jesus with our hearts is if we see not just Palm Sunday, but also Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Let me put it another way. The only way you will truly submit to Jesus in your heart is if you believe that not only is he a king with power to rule over you, but he loves you. Not only is he strong, but he's loving. Not only is he a mighty warrior king, he's the humble servant king. The only way that you will allow him, invite him to rule over your heart is if you believe he is so good and loving that you want him to rule over your heart. And so if you're someone this morning who would be willing to admit, not raising your hand, not doing anything other than just in in your own mind and heart, if you're willing to admit, my heart has been far from Jesus. It's maybe hardened toward him. Maybe you're just distant from Jesus for whatever reason. This week, you're gonna have an opportunity to have fresh eyes to see his compassion for you. I want you to pay attention. There'll be that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane that we'll revisit when his closest followers couldn't stay awake. Jesus was so gracious to them. There'll be that scene by a charcoal fire when Peter will deny three times that he even knew Jesus. You'll see Jesus be so gracious to him. You'll see the scene at the foot of the cross where they've all scattered and the only one left is Jesus's friend John and Jesus's mother. And Jesus is so gracious. You'll be reminded of the words of Jesus on the cross when when he looks out over a whole creation that is broken and men and women, us, because of our sin, that put him on that cross and he'll say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You will see if you look this week, Jesus is a much better friend to you than you could ever be to him. His eagerness to be that gracious and that loving. His willingness to drink the cup of sin and bear your shame on the cross will draw your heart toward him, will soften you as you look at his love for you. 
And I'm praying for you and me that this week we will start to see that not only is he king, but he's love. He's love come to earth. And if Jesus is not only king, but he's also love, then anything he asks of us is not only the right thing to do, but it's for our good. And then we can start to bow down to him with our hearts. We can start to trust him. I want to bring the band back out. If you guys would come up on stage, we're going to sing one more song together. As they're coming out, I just want to ask you all, is there anything you've been holding back from Jesus? The distance, the hardness of heart, maybe just something that you're not willing to trust him with, something you're not willing to let go. This is a great week for you to let that go and bow down to him and learn to trust him as you see his compassion for you throughout the week. The song we're about to sing says over and over, we welcome your kingdom here. We welcome your kingdom here. And I want you to realize the disciples, the followers of Jesus on, on Palm Sunday, they were saying very similar words to that. They were saying, we welcome your kingdom here. And they were pointing to Jerusalem where Jesus was headed. Throw out the Romans. Get, make us free. You know, give us good lives again. We welcome your kingdom here. This morning, you and I have the opportunity to say, we welcome your kingdom here. We welcome your kingdom here. This is where it must start. It's a chance for us to proclaim with our lips and bow down with our hearts. So let's stand as the band leads us. Let's worship our king. Let's do what we were called to do from the beginning of time. Let's lead the creation in worship of King Jesus.